October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Although the issue is spotlighted right now, the truth is that attention needs to be paid to cybersecurity awareness every minute of every day. Hospital and health systems can't afford to let their guard down for a moment because the activities of cyber criminals never stop. Welcome to Advancing Health, a podcast brought to you by the American Hospital Association. I'm Tom Hederley with AHA Communications. In this podcast, we have a unique opportunity to hear from a high-level government leader whose job it is to defend the nation's critical infrastructure from cyber attacks and other threats. Tasked with this extremely important mission, and here with us today is Nitin Natarajan, Deputy Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. Nitin is a friend and colleague of John Rigi, who joined the AHA as National Advisor for Cybersecurity and Risk after a nearly 30-year career with the FBI. In this podcast, John and Nitin discuss the biggest cyber and other threats facing healthcare and other infrastructure sectors, how they overlap, the role of CISA, and what healthcare providers can do to defend against the sophisticated cyber threats that everyone faces. And now, over to John. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is John Rigi, your National Advisor for Cybersecurity and Risk. Thanks for joining us again for another Advancing Health podcast. In the series I host, we focus on national cyber and risk issues in which we feature highly accomplished leaders from the healthcare field, cybersecurity industry, and government. They provide us with their frontline perspective in the never-ending battle against the serious cyber threats we all face in the healthcare field and as a nation. Today, I am truly honored to have with me Nitin Natarajan, the Deputy Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, commonly known as CISA. First, a little bit about our distinguished guest. Prior to joining CISA in February 2021, Mr. Natarajan served in a variety of public and private sector positions spanning over 30 years. Most recently, he served as an executive at consulting firms providing subject matter expertise on a variety of topics. Mr. Natarajan also held a number of federal, state, and local government roles. Prior to serving in the federal government, and I think most relevant and relatable for our listeners, Mr. Natarajan served as a hospital administrator. In addition, Mr. Natarajan started his career spending 13 years as a first responder in New York, including service as a flight paramedic. Nitin, thank you for taking the time to speak with us in the healthcare field in all your tireless efforts to defend us against the myriad of threats we face. So when I was looking at the background of CISA, and I started to think about how new an agency you are, I think you've only been uh, in service for about four years. And uh, it's, it's interesting, the uh, contrast we here at the AHA, we were established in 1898 at the FBI, where I came from. We were established in 1908. So I'd love to hear your perspective about the challenges and perhaps benefits of being a relatively new agency. And so why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit about CISA, its mission, and your leadership role and responsibilities. Thanks, John, and, and hello, everyone. It's, it's great to, to be here today, and I truly appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about 
some of my favorite topics, right? Cybersecurity, critical infrastructure, and healthcare, all in the same place uh, coming together. And appreciate the opportunity to, to share a little bit about CISA and where we are and what we're doing and how we can continue to work together to tackle really what is a, a, an immense challenge ahead of us. You know, as John, as you mentioned, CISA is relatively new. We're in that four-year mark. And I think that, you know, we had a predecessor organization that's been around for about 15 years. So, you know, but we were part, we were a policy office. We were part of DHS headquarters. And CISA formed as a standalone component, as we like to call it, the bureaucracy. Uh, so we went from being kind of an internal entity, you know, in a policy arena to a much more robust uh, standalone organization, similar to your predecessor at the FBI and, and, and other organizations. So it's been, it's a great opportunity for us, I think, as we tackle that nexus of physical and cyber threats, that nexus of, of protecting critical uh, infrastructure from uh, cyber physical adversaries, and being able to do it in a way that we want to. Right. We are not an organization that has been mired down in, in decades of, of history. We actually have that ability to create what we want to create to tackle this nimble adversary in a way uh, that, that meets the needs of our organization and frankly of the nation and of all of our partners. So I think while it is definitely a challenge being new and growing, benefits to it that we found that I think are going to set us up uh, for more success as we go forward especially given the need for us to be very collaborative with our colleagues in the private sector, our colleagues in state, local, tribal, territorial governments. You know, this, this is not just about what the federal government does, but this is truly what we as a nation do together. You know, here in my role as a deputy director, I kind of have uh, oversight and purview across the entire organization. So everything from all of our business functions and our business operations that need to exist in the organization to be successful through a lot of our, our program execution. And I think when you look at CISA, you know, right now, a lot of our focus is on cybersecurity and excited to talk about that here today. But we do have parts of our organization that focus on cybersecurity, on infrastructure security. So this is physical security against, you know, everything from bombs and soft target uh, challenges, which a lot of healthcare uh, facilities face across the nation, to emergency communications. And how do we make sure we have good communications uh, with uh, public safety answering points and 911 centers? Again, an area where the healthcare industry is, is intimately tied in, while also looking at risk across the nation and across sectors. And how do we really try to understand risk? And I think one of the things that we've been focused on, that I've personally been heavily focused on, is really how do we educate an understanding of what risk we are accepting as a nation, what risk we are accepting as an institution? Because we spend a lot of time identifying risk. We spend a lot of time talking about mitigating risk. And we forget that that third leg of the stool is any risk we've identified and not mitigated, we've accepted. And that acceptance truly is with CEOs and with boards of directors and others that need to understand the risk of their institution and to their broader sector. So, you know, at CISA, we really have this opportunity to look across the spectrum, across the sectors, to understand interdependencies across the cyber and, and the physical domains and wrap all of that in a way that can help sectors better protect themselves. And at the end of the day, increase the resilience of our nation's critical infrastructure. Thanks, Nitin. So some really key points I think you brought out for our listeners, uh, the intersection of cyber threats and physical threats, and the fact that your mandate is to protect all U.S. critical infrastructure sectors and how threats and understand and broadcast to the private sector, how threats actually are translating into risk. So along those lines, what do you currently see as the biggest cyber and other threats, risks, facing healthcare 
in other critical infrastructure sectors and how do they overlap? So I think this is where we, you know, we made the transition a couple of years ago, looking at national critical functions, right? So looking at how do we understand the 16 sectors and then how do we understand those functions that are cross sectors? So a hospital, for instance, right, cannot function uh, without access to water, access to, to energy and effective supply chain or workforce, all these other types of elements that are dependent upon other sectors. And so as we look at, at both cyber and physical threats, we're looking at them from the perspective of not just those that impact the sector within that box, that the, how the sector defines itself, but what are those interdependencies that folks are looking at? And when we look at it from that perspective, I think one of the largest things we look at really is the workforce. When we look at COVID-19 and the impact that COVID had on our workforce and the impact that subsequently had on critical infrastructure, right, by impacting owners and operators by impacting you know, everything from, from water operators and going to water treatment plants. Obviously, there was a huge impact in the healthcare sector, not just clinicians at the bedside, but also all the other ancillary services are needed uh, to deliver healthcare. But through all of the sectors, uh, seeing workforce shortages uh, and the impacts there, but also looking on the cyber side, looking at things like ransomware is, is a major concern of ours. You know, we've seen obviously an uptick in, in ransomware attacks across the nation. And we're, we're not just seeing ransomware attacking large multinational companies or large federal government organizations, but we're seeing very small institutions, small hospitals, small uh, school districts across urban and rural parts of America, you know, being impacted by ransomware attacks. And then the, again, the subsequent, you know, both not just the, um, the operational impact and the financial impacts on these organizations as we see that. I think where the healthcare sector is kind of in this unique position as we look at that cyber and physical threat is the dependence that the healthcare sector has on both IT and on OT systems. You know, if you look at everything in the hospital these days is connected uh, electronically somehow. And if I go back to when I started in, in healthcare, you know, we didn't have as much internet connectivity uh, as we do today, just on the IT side of the house, not even to mention medical devices and a lot of the other things today that are much more, more connected. You know, so having that ability to uh, to recognize and understand those risks and threats, understanding that really the healthcare sector truly is a target-rich environment, and really that the threat surface area is significantly higher because of the dependence on IT and OT, and because of that increased dependence on technology in the future, is something that's on the forefront of our minds. Totally agreed, Nitin. Uh, so you brought up some key points that we talk about and unfortunately experience every day, including the workforce shortage. The CEOs that I speak to as I travel around the country cite workforce as their top risk issue in the organization and followed immediately by cyber in most instances. And it's interesting, the interdependence uh, and the effect workforce has on cyber issues. For instance, we're facing, as you know, a massive shortage of trained cybersecurity professionals, not only in healthcare, but across all sectors. And then, of course, our clinical workforce shortage is draining necessary dollars potentially from cybersecurity budgets to pay for, for instance, traveling nurses. We did see in the uh, onset of the pandemic, as you mentioned, a massive increase in deployment of network-connected and internet-connected technologies, which, as you said, expanded our attack surface. And then, of course, the adversaries increased their attacks just when we were most vulnerable. Speaking of the threats, when it, when it comes to cyber threats, we've often seen this blending of financially motivated criminal cyber gangs working in collusion with, or at least with the acquiescence 
of hostile nation state intelligence and military services for mutual benefit. This hybrid threat has resulted in high impact ransomware attacks against U.S. healthcare and resulted in the theft of large quantities of U.S. citizen health records and medical research. How does CISA collaborate with the U.S. intelligence community, including FBI and NSA, to identify these complex foreign cyber threats and warn the healthcare sector? One of the things that we're really focused on is that collaboration with our colleagues. I think CISA is uniquely positioned in the federal government where we are not part of the intelligence community. We are not a law enforcement entity. Right. We are we are not the, the Defense Department. We are truly, you know, from the federal government and we're here to help. Right? We're in this position uh, to provide assistance. But I think the value out of this is we are very well connected with all of those partners. We're very well connected with our colleagues at the FBI and NSA and, and other parts of the intelligence community, with our colleagues in the DOD, both headquarters, but also through various uh, combat commands and tied in very closely you know, with other parts of the federal uh, executive branch. So we sit in this great place where we have that ability to really understand the threats, the vulnerabilities, what the intelligence landscape is like, and really trying to help separate, you know, how do we help raise up our resilience across the sectors? And then how do we get that information translated in a way that allows us to share it more broadly with our sector partners? And we really look at that twofold. One is how do we look at sharing classified information uh, with parts of our sector that have security clearances? And we actually have, have sponsored clearances for uh, members of the sector to bring them in and to have some of those classified briefings. But then also more importantly to me, which is not to share everything classified because we'll never truly reach every institution throughout the nation. It's how do we get information unclassified? How do we get it redacted? How do we get it unclassified where we can share that with every hospital in the country? And information sharing is something that's been near and dear to my heart since, frankly, since I work in the hospital. You know, the, the, the story I share is I was asked once when I was a hospital administrator by a federal agency, you know, there was a hurricane coming. Are you going to evacuate your hospital? And my answer was no. And this person actually turned to me and said, how can you do that? I have a model that says there's an X percent of probability of X amount of flooding to your institution if you don't evacuate. And I said, well, that's great. I have the weather channel and I looked outside my window. I don't have access to the information, the resources, the analytic products that you have access to. So you want me to make a decision uh, you know, using the information I have, but you want to hold me accountable to a decision utilizing information I don't have. That's not how this works. So that led me on my tirade of information sharing and how we can always strive to do better. So one of the things we've really looked at is working with all of our partners of how do we get information into the hands of those who can, who can work with it. I have a mantra that I'll share with everyone on information sharing. I share this with every single new employee that comes into CISA. It's how do we get the right information to the right people in a timely manner that results in more informed decision-making. So the decision at the end of the day may remain the same, but at least the decision is better informed. And so how do we continue to improve our ability to get information into the hands of all of you so you can guide your decisions locally on the threats that you're facing, both in the cyber and the physical domain? And we do that effectively by working with our partners throughout the intelligence community, throughout the law enforcement community, to make sure we are creating the most robust products we can. We've also committed to joint sealing a lot of our products. So when you see CISA products come out, if you go to our, our website at CISA.gov and look at a lot of our products, they're not just branded with our CISA logo. You'll see the logos of CISA, of the FBI, of the NSA, of other parts of our, our intelligence community with, with 
other international partners. We have joint products with our colleagues in the UK and Australia, where we're really bringing together all of these organizations to strengthen our information sharing efforts across all the sectors. And we're committed to continuing to do that as we go forward. Because again, at the end of the day, if the information is not in your hands to help guide your decision-making, and whether that's operationally from a you know, natural threat that you're facing from a hurricane or a natural disaster, or how you want to invest in your organization against future cyber threats over the next you know, 12 uh, to 24 months, it's useless sitting here inside the beltway. So it's a great, I think we have a great partnership with these entities and I think it's critical as we continue to work together is to strive to get all of you the, the best information that we can to help increase our resilience across the sectors. And we truly appreciate that in the private sector here. As you know, having been on both sides and one of my responsibilities at FBI was to direct the sharing and declassification of cyber threat uh, information out to the critical infrastructure. And it was so frustrating often for private sector when FBI agents would show up at their door and say, um, we want, we're here to advise you, you have a problem. Your networks may have been penetrated, but we can't share anything else with you. Very, very frustrating for the agency and obviously the victims. Uh, we launched on a tremendous effort to declassify as much as we could and uh, provide that to the victim. So that's that's really tremendous effort that you're doing there. And I advise uh, the nation's hospitals and health systems to really pay attention when they see those joint seal bulletins, that the the gravity and seriousness of those bulletins have been validated across multiple sectors and with independent review by analysts from each agency. So I said, the more the more seals on the document, the intelligence product, the more weight it should carry. The other thing I'd offer is that, you know, often there's a huge desire with a lot of our partners to see the classified information, right? As if the classified information has some specific targeting information or who ha it has the golden egg, so to speak. Right. And often it doesn't. And so what I definitely encourage folks to do as well is when we publish unclassified reporting, when we publish things to our system.gov website or, or through other mechanisms, there's a reason behind it. And, you know, we, we definitely don't have teams here writing just to write or we're writing because there's intent behind it. And that, you know, if we are publishing something focused on a specific topic or a specific area, you know, chances are there's a reason behind it and a reason why we want to focus on this specific topic right now, you know, and we're making the asset we're asking. So, you know, please take, you know, weight into not just the, the number of folks that are engaged on this, which John is a great point, but also the, the, the reasoning behind a lot of our publishing is because we feel a need based on information that's, that's less public. So definitely encourage folks to, to, to not assume we're printing to print, but we're printing with intent. Totally agree, Nitin, and I often help try to uh, amplify that message it, going back to even the fall ransomware threat of 2020, where there was some skepticism initially about the threat. As I, you know, I advise strongly that there is a reason this is coming out, and it is not based on hearsay or some internet chatter. There is most likely highly classified sources and methods which have led to the development and dissemination of this threat. So we appreciate that. And again, what I think is most important for us to receive are those technical indicators of compromise. We don't need to know how you got them, where you got them. We just need to know what they are so we can load them into our network defenses. So great point. Nitin, with the, the massive responsibility that you and CISA have to safeguard the nation's 16 critical infrastructure sectors, 
in what some may view as overlapping responsibilities with the individual sector risk management agencies, how does CISA coordinate with and distinguish responsibilities with the healthcare sector's risk management agency, HHS? So I think, you know, we work closely with all the sector risk management agencies and, and, you know, I, ironically in a former life, I actually ran the sector risk management agency for healthcare at HHS. So I, I think I, I treasure that relationship very closely. We, um, you know, we need to work in collaboration. You know, CESA is not HHS. We do not bring to bear the expertise and the relationships and the experience that the FDA, that CDC, that ASPR and other parts of, of HHS has in place. I think what we can do is, is kind of marry up our expertise and what we're seeing in cybersecurity and in physical security, what we're seeing across all of the sectors and really trying to understand kind of that cross-sector dynamic, combining that with HHS's experience and expertise, focusing on, on the healthcare sector and being able to marry those up to strengthen various programs and projects related to increasing resilience of the healthcare and public health sector across the nation. We've also really focused on our regional team. So as HHS has staff in the regions and communities th uh, throughout the nation, we also have regional staff uh, throughout the nation. We have protective security advisors that focus on physical security. We have cybersecurity advisors, uh, and we also have emergency communications coordinators. And what we've really tried to do locally on the ground in your communities is to bring our regional coordinators and the HHS regional staff together so we really can provide kind of that holistic approach to increasing and strengthening resilience in your communities by marrying up that healthcare expertise that, that HHS brings to bear with the cybersecurity critical infrastructure and the broad cross-sector expertise uh, that we have uh, at CISA. You know, there really is, I mean, the beauty of this is there's so much work to go around. Uh, you know, there's more work than any one of our organizations do on our, on our own. But we, we've really been uh, intent in leaning forward to respect the role of the sector risk management agency and to work with them uh, in our engagements, because it really is needs to be a team sport. Nitin, given your direct experience in healthcare, what do you believe are the most essential and immediate cybersecurity controls healthcare providers should implement to defend against the sophisticated cyber threats we're facing? In a, a add along question there, I understand that CISA offers a wide variety of free resources to help private sector defend against these complex threats. Could you also talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'm happy to. I, I think as we look at the essential and immediate actions that folks can take, I mean, you know, I encourage everyone can do something. Every single person has a role to play in cybersecurity. Everybody has a role to play when it comes to physical security. And whether that's in our personal life or whether it's in our professional roles, we all have actions that we can take. You know, I ironically kind of equate this back. Uh, those of you who may have worked in the unit at one time or another uh, remember uh, the old continuing education books and, and tests we had to take every year. And you'd see the answers lightly penciled in, you know, on, on the test. And uh, as folks had to, have to take this every year, you know, how do we put controls into place to prevent some of that? And I think, you know, obviously the, it, bringing technology in has allowed us to put some of those checks and balances in place, but we all have a role to play in this. We all have a role to play in, in our actions and activities to, to increase up our, our, our resilience. Part of that is tapping into services and resources that we have available. One of the things that we've done here at CISA is we've recognized there are healthcare institutions that are, that are large, multi-state, multinational institutions. There are small uh, facilities that don't have all the resources to truly invest in a robust cyber uh, defensive posture. 
However, at the same time, they are equally they, they are on equal standing on the threat landscape. They're on equal standing on the vulnerability and the targeting by our adversaries. So we've really tried to put together a number of free services that we've put out there, including things like vulnerability scanning and web application scanning, opportunities to do phishing campaign assessments uh, to see will you click on it. I'm a firm believer that still in this country, people will click on anything. You know, because for some reason, people still believe we're going to get a million dollars via email. And so having that opportunity to go through some of those uh, phishing campaigns, uh, remote pen testing uh, is another thing uh, that we offer. So we have a lot of capabilities uh, out there. We've also had, frankly, a lot of, of companies approach us coming up uh, with the Russia-Ukraine incident kicking off last uh, almost a year ago now, where they've offered free services as well so that those that, that are you know, target rich and resource poor can tap into these free services, whether they're CISAs or from uh, some of these other vendors, to help increase their resilience and increase their defenses against cyber attacks. We know that the healthcare sector is really taking us up on our on our cyber hygiene efforts. I mean, we've seen a huge increase in the past couple of years in participants through the sector. I want to say we had a little over 100 back in 2020, and we're currently over 400 participants just in the healthcare and public health sector. So we're really excited to see that. We're really excited to have that participation. You know, as we look at kind of what are the measurements and outcomes of some of this, and, and in 2001, we looked at about 185 scanned sector entities, and we found that close to 40% of these entities ran exposed risky services on internet accessible hosts. So we were able to take this information, provide that feedback, and really allow these organizations to take the steps they needed to address these issues. Of those, we actually found about 25% had known exploited vulnerabilities that weren't remediated and that were active for almost 300 days. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities uh, through some of our, our resources, and again, all of this is up on our website, to help strengthen uh, the resilience of your respective facilities and subsequently you know, the, the resilience of the sector at large. And so, because a lot of it we know comes back to the fundamentals and basics, right? It's about system patching. It's about passwords. It's about utilization of things like multi-factor authentication, which is critical. It's about you know not taping passwords under keyboards, <laughs> you know a lot of that kind of basic stuff that we talk about. That frankly we still see in some some parts of the nation, and uh, making sure folks are taking advantage of all the resources they have available. And again, there are opportunities out there for those that don't, that you know need the protection but don't have the ability to do the investment by utilization of our services and those of others that have stepped up to the plate and, and offered free services. Thanks, Nitin. This is fantastic information, uh, especially on the free resources. Our small and rural hospitals are under tremendous uh, resource and financial strain, again, only exasperated by the pandemic. And we're happy to amplify your messaging and the availability of your free resources, again, which I think will be tremendous assistance to healthcare right now. Finally, how, how do the nation's hospitals and health systems contact CISA prior to a cyber incident, hopefully, and during an emergency situation such as a high-impact ransomware attack? So, John, I think you know, the easiest way, you know, as we talk about during an attack or after an attack, is, is reaching us 24-7 at report at CISA.gov. So report at CISA.gov gets to our watch center that is active 24-7 that can then take that, that issue and get into the right part uh, of our organization. But I think, you know, when we look at the day-to-day, -day, when we look at, at preparedness, when we look at resilience, it's connecting with our regional staff. It's connecting with our folks that are on the ground in your communities that speak CISA, that understand our programs and understand 
uh, that can get folks enrolled in our various programs, that can get you involved in our exercises, can get you involved in those types of activities and making those connections. And, and we have information on our website as well about our regional footprint and our regional teams and how to reach them. But you know, I think there's va huge value in connecting locally with our folks on the ground, but then always knowing that if you reach back to us at that email address, that we are standing by 24 seven to hear and respond to, to what you're seeing. You know, we're really excited about uh, the cyber incident reporting for critical infrastructure acts or SIA and some of the reporting we're gonna see with that. Cause I think the value add is we look at reporting and sharing of information. And I, I can't stress this enough. Sharing information with CISA is not just about giving CISA information. It's about giving us the ability to take what you're seeing to combine that with what we're seeing across the intelligence community, across our law enforcement partners, across other sectors, across other international partners, to wrap all of that together and then to give back to you information and mitigation and actions that you can take to best protect your networks. So it, it's not about sharing information with CISA, it's about strengthening the ability for us to better help each other protect the nation's critical infrastructure CISA just has that wonderful opportunity to be at that hub to bring all those other entities together. But when I look at the most impactful reports and guides that we've put out, when we've put out guidance on mitigation steps that need to be taken, that's been derived from input from all of our partners, public and private sector, federal, state, local, tribal, territorial governments, from our international partners. All of that together is what gives our products the strength and the ability to truly make a difference on the ground to make sure that the mitigation steps and the guidance that we're providing is as well informed as it can be, is as operational as it can be. And so that information sharing isn't just about giving the federal government information, but it actually allows us to better inform all of you and your partners with more robust information on, on steps that you can take uh, to address an urgent cyber risk or even a longer term resilience. Thank you, Nitin, and, and totally agreed. As I always say, one team, one fight, private sector and government have to be joined and collaborate against this truly complex threat. The bottom line is the bad guys collaborate pretty frequently and effectively, and uh, we can't even hope to defeat them unless we come together as government and private sector. For our listeners, let me repeat that important report at CISA, C-I-S-A dot gov, and also reach out for your local CISA contact, hopefully prior to an emergency, and incorporate that contact into your incident response plan. Nitin, thank you so much for taking the time today out of your busy schedule to address the hospitals and health systems of the nation. And thank you to all the men and women of CISA for what you do 24-7 to keep the nation safe. And thanks to all our healthcare listeners for what you do and have done to care for our patients and keep our communities safe. This has been John Regi, your National Advisor for Cybersecurity and Risk. Stay safe, everyone.